and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh, and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about Robert Eggers, The Northman, and I am joined by the two Rewind guests I most want on my team in a game of Not Laker. It's uh, Ben Lubin. Ben, how's it going? Uh, exhausted, but really excited to talk about this movie. Yeah, and Elijah Howard. Elijah, what's up? You ready to talk about some Viking shit? Hell yeah, let's go. <laughs> let's get so, metal. Yeah, so uh, The Northman is the newest movie from writer-director Robert Eggers. He co-wrote it with uh, Icelandic poet Sean, and it uh, is a movie that is uh, largely set in Iceland. And as I intimated before, it is about some Viking shit. So uh, we pick up in uh, about, you know, late ninth century i guess uh there's a a, a king played by uh ethan hawk who uh, kind of returns to his uh he returns to his village where he has a young uh, where is he a young son whose name is amleth he uh you know is uh kind of like just uh, obviously some a pretty loving father and is there to kind of bring his son to the precipice of manhood he is uh married to a queen uh gudrun how do you how do you pronounce it, guys is it gudrun i can't remember uh pretty sure it was gudrun Good, yeah, he, he, he has, his, accent, yeah, his wife is uh, Queen Gudrun, played by Nicole Kidman. And he kind of takes him through a ritual uh, under the supervision of uh, Heimir the Fool, played by Willem Dafoe. That, that's all sorts of colorful. We'll talk about that. But the next day, while out in the woods, uh, Amleth sees his father being brutally murdered by his uncle, Fjorner yep. the Brotherless, uh, played by Kleist Bang, who is a, is he an Irish actor? Or no, a Danish actor. Uh, and Amleth escapes, even though uh, Fjorner is trying to uh, kill him and we pick up 20 years later when uh, Amleth is played by uh, Alexander Skarsgård and he is just uh, doing all sorts of Viking shit and uh, pillaging, pillaging, uh, attacking villages, raising them, all that fun stuff. Uh, but all, all the while, while he's part of a Viking crew, he still wants to get revenge on his uncle and save his mother. And he hears that his uncle has been uh, exiled to a remote part of Iceland after being kind of overthrown. And he schemes to kind of get near him by just like basically just uh, becoming becoming a slave as a way of just uh, kind of becoming becoming part of this group that his uncle is acquiring. And he is going to uh, see about how he can uh, infiltrate him and get, get his revenge that way. In the process, he meets another female slave uh, named Olga of the Birch Forest. She's played by Anya Taylor-Joy. They kind of form their own connection as well. And we learn there's uh, more that meets the eye with her. Uh, oh, I guess I'll start with you on this. Uh, you're 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 a guy that just like knows about a lot of different kinds of things we've had you on here for everything from you know uh talking about uh car stuff talking about sports stuff and talking about other stories of guys getting revenge uh at or set hundreds of years ago as you guys joined me for the green night last year and i know uh, you know you're 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 obviously into those uh you know that sort of sort of mythology and the arthurian stuff so i gotta ask because I knew you were very excited about this movie and you'd requested it a while ago and I kind of knew it was going to be your thing even before you did. Are you like into Viking stuff too? Because you seem like you're into a lot of things. I'm wondering like, are you into Viking stuff? Is this like kind of uh, kind of aimed at you also as a this, this subject matter? Yeah, of course. I mean, <laughs> I, I I would say, you know, the, the Arthuriana fits more broadly into, uh, you know, part of my academic background, which is, uh, you know, medievalist. Mm -hmm. Um history so the viking era is a part a region of that history and so yeah for for me i think there was definitely a bit of excitement about just the sheer fact that robert movie, is you know that yeah that, that robert eggers was going to be tackling this part of of history because you know as much as i love the witch and as much as i enjoy the historicity of the witch and the the authenticity of it I don't claim to be an expert on 
you know, the early modern era on, on, on the early colonial period in the U S. So that's for me, it was, it was really exciting to have Eggers try and put his touch on this, uh, on this period. That means a lot to me. Yeah. And you joined us for the lighthouse too. So I know you're kind of into his sensibility. So him tackling this must've been uh, pretty exciting for you, Ben. I think, I don't know if I came away from this with quite as much to say as you guys have to say, but the one thing that like I came away wanting to like talk about this movie with people about was just the fact that like it got made in the first place. And I'm wondering how pleasantly surprised or not even necessarily surprised. Cause I'm sure you have a somewhat of a respect for Robert Eggers as a filmmaker, but like just how I was like, wow, he really got to do that. And it felt like, and I actually heard him give an interview where he said he didn't quite have final cut and that might've given him a, a couple of little frustrations, but yeah, even in spite of that, like the fact that he got to do this and it doesn't feel like his sensibilities were tampered, tempered down that much. And he got to like go all out in this way. I'm wondering just like how in all you were still in of the, of the final product and that like he got to do this and it seemed like he got to kind of stay pretty true to what he wanted to do. And I imagine that was something that like struck a chord with you. Yeah, I was actually very surprised by that. Like the thing that I've kind of messaged just about everyone I've talked to about this movie, like the first thing that struck me when I left the theater was this is effectively the first time ever where a talented indie filmmaker has given has been given like big budget tentpole money and been allowed to do the same thing they would do normally, just bigger. And obviously it is true that behind the scenes, he did not have Final Cut. There were a lot more creative struggles than we would imagine there would be looking at the final film. Mm. But no matter the process of how it got there, I do think the end product feels shockingly like an Eggers film, but bigger. Mm. Uh, like normally there's this kind of, it, it, it's kind of a very familiar pattern where kind of the bigger budget uh, you're allowed to play with, the less kind of creative freedom you actually have. Um, like a story, like an anecdote that I come back to a lot, uh, Olivia Rousseau, who's a filmmaker I've talked about on here a lot, who I'm a big fan of, was interviewed about the possibility of making a Marvel movie at one point. I did and not know he, that. Because <laughs> he, he actually like is a huge comic fan. Um, legitimately like loves comics, loves the characters. And he said it's like he would love to do that, but he would only do it if instead of being given $200 million, Marvel would let him make it for $20 million. Huh because he felt like that was the only way that he would be allowed to actually make the film that he would want to make. And I think my worry with The Northman is that we were going to get a watered down version of Eggers' vision. And whatever the, whatever the process to get there was, I, I really feel like this is an Eggers film. And in some ways, I, I, I've kind of been going back and forth about this a lot. I do think I probably prefer The Lighthouse overall, but I think that there are aspects of The Northman that are him arriving at a new level in terms of just his abilities as a director. And I, I think it's, it's funny. Uh, I am not a Viking person specifically, but I am a mythology person. Uh, like I'm a classicist. That's a lot of what I studied. Myth is very much something I obsess about a lot. Um, and Greek mythology is kind of my bread and butter, but I am knowledgeable about it and I've read a lot about uh, other mythological traditions too, including kind of Scandinavian and what we consider broadly like Norse mythology, uh, which one thing that is very cool about this movie is that quote unquote Norse mythology is not like one unified pantheon. That's something we can get into later, but it's something that I was actually really happy to see in the movie. 
The other thing that was very cool about this that I actually didn't know going in because I didn't do a ton of research on it is I did not realize that this was uh, based off of the particular kind of Viking story that was used as a basis for Hamlet. That was something I meant to say before. And like, yeah, if, if, if the broad strokes of that story I described to being sound familiar, that might be yeah. why. No, uh, and something that a lot of people don't realize about Shakespeare is a lot of his plays uh, used kind of older myths or older stories as kind of touchstones. Um, I mean, with Hamlet, there was this uh, kind of, uh, I believe the, I, I don't know if it was Danish or Icelandic, actually, the, the specific story, but it was... It's, uh, it's Danish originally. I, I was, it's, it's Saxon, Danish Saxon. I thought it was, but yeah, but the I guess the original Danish story that uh, Shakespeare used for Hamlet um, it, but Midsummer Night's Dream was also based off of a pre-existing story, not just kind of the familiar mythological characters that we kind of seen certain that, like there was actually a specific kind of story that he was using. He used Mar Marlowe as reference points a lot. So it was pretty common for him to uh, use pre-existing plots and kind of take them in new uh, directions for his plays. And I actually did not realize going into the Northmen that it's adapted from that, uh, that or Hamlet. Uh, version. So I was actually, it, it, it hit kind of a more than one uh, particularly nerdy spot for me because I am a huge Shakespeare obsessive as I may or may not have talked about on this podcast before. But uh, yeah, this like, however the movie turned out, it was kind of always going to be my crack. Well, I didn't, I didn't know that about you and Shakespeare. I am not a Shakespeare obsessive. I talked with our friend Daniel about uh, Tragedy of Macbeth last year and how, like, look, I really respect what these dudes are trying to do, but I find this language just impenetrable. I, it's, 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 it's a hard barrier for me to get over. I didn't have it with subtitles at all. And like, I can, it's it just, you know, you, 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 sometimes people, some people can pick up on it. Some just like have trouble with it. I have trouble with it. I have no problem admitting that there are parts of this movie where like, I mean, Robert Eggers likes doing a lot of interesting stuff with dialogue. As you guys really know, he, didn't he try and like, resurrect one that was like you know almost extinct or something like that for the witch or something like that like he he likes doing like weird shit like that so part of me if you would just kind of describe uh if you just kind of described the northman to me i would have been like oh god like he's gonna do some like really weird shit and i'm not really gonna like be able to follow it at all and well so but it's so it's like here he's actually like kind of adapting a shakespeare story uh using having all these different actors from different places use like really different affects uh but you know I, I don't know any better so it doesn't really bother me like however accurate they are i trust he did his research and, and then it really goes all out with the in, in the bjork scene with like having it be like really 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 impenetrable language but like i still really actually followed the story pretty well so i'm curious elijah like what was your reaction when you kind of like i mean maybe you knew a little bit more going in than ben but like what what did you think overall about how he decided to like go about tell telling the story and in, in the adaptation that in, in the way that Ben just talked about, because I, as someone that really doesn't really click with Shakespeare, like found myself pretty impressed with how he was able to kind of like, obviously do, do some different things with language and dialect in this, but like, actually I thought I found it much more accessible than I would have expected. Yeah. I, I, I would say that among what I think are the greatest triumphs of this movie is what I will call the vindication of Egger's authenticity. Because I, if there's one thing that anybody who's, you know, vaguely tuned in to film Twitter or, or the movie going internet would know about <laughs> Egger's, right? It's, 
it's this kind of onerous sensation of like, oh, great, here he goes again, you know, and, and m- most people that I talk to, even people who whose re- opinions I generally respect about film, th- there seemed to be this feeling before The Northman that Egger's authenticity, you know, striving towards authenticity is it's 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 window dressing. It's just, you know, just for show. It's, uh, you know, fetishistic. It, 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 fetishistic it, yeah. And right. It, the, with the, at the worst, you know, range of terms, right. That it's just self-absorbed, that it's just him jerking off to how, look how smart I am kind of thing. I, personally, since seeing the witch through the lighthouse and straight on to Northman, I've never felt that way. I felt that the, the authenticity was never there just for the sake of being there. I felt that, both the witch and the lighthouse heavily deal with themes of alienation and, you know, the authenticity plays a role in that. Uh, You know, the witch is a film that's deeply about uh, fear of the unknown and you don't get put in that mindset unless you truly can feel the experience of a, of a family that doesn't understand what's, you know, beyond the edge of the forest. Um, and so what I what I thought was maybe one of the greatest triumphs of of the Northmen was hopefully that people can sit back and recognize it's like, oh, so it's not just a maximalist thing. It's not just him being authentic for authentic, like for authenticity's sake. Uh, you know, we had a term for that, you know, when I studied film, it was the tyranny of authenticity, this idea that like you have to be authentic to the detriment of the film. I think I think we know, might have talked about that with the Green Knight last year a little we bit. Might have, we might yeah. have. We talked about just like how they the production design or the costumes and stuff weren't exactly. Uh, he, he Lowry didn't like strain himself to like make it the exact same thing and did his own thing in a way. Right, and exact and exactly, and that's what I loved about this movie, and what I hope people can look at it and say like, oh, okay, it's not just about authenticity; it, it is about telling a story, and the, the you know the value of having. Um, having elements that are true quote unquote to to the past uh, as a means to convey thematic material and narrative and for me that was you know that was maybe the biz- one of the biggest successes of the film was was working trojan horsing like a lot of really brilliant observations about history into a popcorn film like for all intents and purposes like i, I don't want to be re- reductivist here but that was you know, it, it is just a it, like if you strip everything away, it is just a sword and sorcery revenge film. But like, but having those elements there, I think this is like, hopefully, this beats people over the head with like, you see, it's not just about, <laughs> it's not just about uh, you know writing a history textbook. It is telling a story. There's something I kind of want to build off about that because I, I think that's actually a really really good point. Um, in terms of authenticity, I think that there are a lot of different kinds of authenticity. There is kind of fetishistic period detail uh, that a lot of that would be costuming, set design, getting every little thing accurate to the actual look of the world. But the authenticity that has really struck me about Egger's films has more to do with authenticity of how he captures those particular oral traditions that he's working with. Because I do think the it store more than stories themselves the way stories are told tonally texturally 
that is where that like there there is so much that we can glean in terms of how people viewed the world, what life was like, how people thought, felt, believed, like the the actual texture of what uh, specific oral traditions were matter a lot. Like I mean, if it, Homeric uh, oral tradition is is obviously a kind of a very specific example, um, and if you actually look at the way the Odyssey and the Iliad were structured and told and what details were relevant and what tone was used to kind of uh, portray certain aspects of the world, we learn a lot about the particular parts of pre-ancient Greek history that Homer was almost resurrecting within those texts. Um, I'm not gonna go in a whole rant about Minoan civilization, but in terms of- You're pretty that, on brand if you wanted to, but I'm not gonna complain. It's I, I could, but that's gonna, <laughs> Josh, that's gonna extend the podcast for at least one hour. Um, uh, yeah, no, I mean, just quick tangent because this is, one of the few classes that from my college that I will take any excuse to rave about. I uh, took a class with the world's foremost expert on Homeric archaeology. Hmm. Um, and that is still one of the coolest experiences I had in college and learned so much about the actual basis behind storytelling. That's kind of where a lot of what I'm talking about now, uh, where I got that from. But in, in terms of Eggers films, the what is interesting about the authenticity in the Northmen is not the visual detail. It's not this kind of inscrutable attention to the look of the ships, the costuming, anything like that. What is interesting about the authenticity is the way that he used the tone of the story to capture something about the worldview of that time. There is something ecstatic and violent and aggressive about the film that I think is useful as a lens into what Viking life was like. If this is, these are the stories you tell, if these are the things you believe in, how can we extrapolate what your life was like from those, from yeah, those story elements? Can I, can I read a passage from a review I, I, that really struck me earlier? Uh, it was from uh, Vince Mancini at Uproxx, and he wrote that the reason I love Robert Eggers is that he tells stories in such a way that the fantastic is real. The characters in The Witch and the Northman don't battle spirits and demons and have prophetic drug-fueled visions because Eggers is taking liberties. They do these things because that's how people in the 8th and 16th centuries generally understood their world. For them, the fantastic was reality. That's how Eggers treats it. And if the audience gets to live deliciously in the process, so much the better. And that really like stuck with me more than like anything I read about any of his stuff, any of his work the last couple of weeks, because it's like, I, I, that was something interesting. I thought about, it's like, oh, I don't really necessarily feel like I'm like watching something of the fantasy genre when I'm watching this. Like these people are just kind of in it and they're just like accepting these things as they happen, like for what they are and just reacting accordingly. It doesn't feel like I'm uh, watching something that's like, I don't know, like, sci-fi or like pure fantasy at all and i think that's a uh, i think that really speaks to kind of what ben was saying and just how he captures a particular vibe the reason that i'm sitting here nodding like a lunatic is because that is i i think that's going to be our standard bearing for this conversation in general is because that that permeates every aspect of this film right and how it tells its story and like you you said you know you don't view these things as fantasy but that i think fundamentally is part of or you don't you don't view it as like you don't view it in the same lens as you view other fantasy films or, or things like that but when we talk about the way that you know Eggers reflects the 
internalities and the externalities and the, the dialogue of the time period. I don't mean the actual dialogue. I mean, the, the, the cultural dialogue of the time period, uh, you know, that he's, he's portraying. It's so important to recognize how influential that was to everything that we consider norm quote unquote, normal fantasy today. Uh, the war Moroboros, Tolkien, none of that would exist without the 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 specific oral tradition that was laid out in the edda and in the you know the saxon sagas and things like that and so i think as we talk about this film what i would hope that listeners pick up on is how much this like the things that are like quote unquote normal in this movie are both reflective of that original oral tradition and hopefully people recognize how impactful that has been to shaping our understanding of the genre. To that end, Ben, what did you think in the in in the in the first Willem Dafoe scene? We kind of had maybe some idea of what we we're in for based on. Well, you might not have watched the trailer for this. I know you're not. Really I, I did not watch the trailer. the trailer. Literally, so all I knew about the movie yeah. uh, going in was it's Robert Eggers. It has something to do with Vikings, and this is his first time being given a budget of this level. That that is basically everything I knew, other than the casting. So sure. So I mean, based on the fact that it was Robert Eggers, you could have maybe assumed there was going to be uh, so, so, some fantastical element. So, what did you think when all of a sudden we're in a cave with uh, Willem Dafoe and there's burping and farting going on? But then all of a sudden, some magic shit. <laughs> I, so, uh, like, here's the thing: it, it it kind of got me into it very quickly. Um, I mean, look, that's that's kind of my baseline for a movie. The first time I see farting, I'm in. Um, <laughs> but no, in, in in all seriousness. I think one of the one of the things that struck me about that scene and that scene happening so quickly in kind of Eggers' previous two films, I think the actual tone and energy of, of those two first movies was were on very different levels. Um, the Witch is a much quieter and more tense and restrained film out of necessity for what it is uh, than The Northmen, which it's not restrained. It's not restrained. As much more uh, visceral and and scatological uh, as as the case may be, um, and I I think I, I have complicated feelings about this. I think Eggers can sometimes get uh, conflated with Ari Aster a lot, um, just because they are kind of the two like a twenty four horror directors right now, and. However you feel about Ari Aster, I think they are very different filmmakers. Um, and I think Aster is someone who does kind of specifically play much more restrained for the most part. And I think that's just, that's very much just part of his style. Um, the out, the out kind of the, the more violent moments are meant to be jarring against the kind of tenser and more restrained film as a whole. Whereas Eggers, I think the way he uses tone is very different. And I think that opening scene with Defoe's like kind of helped me get into the, the vein of, okay, one, there is a very strong sense of world and tone here, but two, this is Eggers making something that is very specifically different from what I've seen from before, because it was tense and wild in a similar to way to what the lighthouse was, but it didn't feel like he was totally repeating himself. Um, well, in some ways, it felt warmer too, just because you already kind of saw what kind of relationship that he had. Well, with it. warmer, I, it's complicated because I, I think what we're meant to take out of that opening scene is complicated, right? Um, I don't think it's meant to kind of fully 
again, allow us to embrace everything about this world, it's meant to feel uncomfortable. Sure. I mean, we, we are looking at this from a modern lens, sure. But I think even no matter what lens we're looking at this from, like the kind of almost uncomfortable masculinity of the scene, it's, it's not like inherently meant to be judged. But I think from any lens we look at it, it is not necessarily like the meant to be taken as the, the best thing in the world. Like there is something very like intentionally dehumanizing about what the way about what this kind of young boy is being kind of brought into the world as. And, and I think we, I mean, obviously as the film progresses, we see that pushback against uh, traditions of masculinity in this world explored in different ways. And we kind of see cultural norms of this time become much more problematized. But I think a lot of, a lot of that happens very early in the film. And I think that scene with uh, Defoe, outside of being an introduction into the fantastic language that the film as a whole is going to be using, is a good early introduction to our beginning to question uh, the, the cultural merits of what we're witnessing. And as we follow Amleth's journey, obviously, uh, that develops more and more, but I, I really like that scene. And that's putting aside the fact that it was uh, just visually pretty spectacular. I mean, I, I am a very much a mark for Willem Dafoe at this point. Um, but yeah, I, just, I, I really like that sequence as a whole. Yeah. Elijah, going off of that, did you, what did you think about how, I mean, obviously Eggers has some level of fascination to want to like tackle this world in the first place, but I mean, Ben kind of touched on a couple of things there with respect to toxic masculinity and how he should even feel about like a, a kid entering this world. Did you kind of come away from like the introduction to the world thinking like, oh, he wants us to like really like these people or, uh, or, or did you kind of take him as like kind of saying something else about why he decided to like invest all of this time into like exploring these particular people in this time and place? For me, I think what I kind of recognized in it is that some some of these sagas some of these you know pieces of of scandinavian mythology um not not all of them but but a decent number of them are written as very direct narratives about people and i think the northman is a case of that where Amleth is our point of view character. And so in a way, it's not that the audience isn't allowed to make our own judgments about the world, but I think we have to recognize that we're seeing the world from this kid's perspective. And that does shape how we take in the world, right? You know, for example, there's, it, the sagas are interesting because uh, not unlike mythology in, in several other cultures but very vastly different obviously than abramic neo-abramic you know western religion as we would call it um the relationship between people and gods is a lot more complicated between people and deities between people and mythological figures um there's a lot more uh, what we would nowadays call psychology wrapped up in those relationships um, that that's openly explored that this is not to say that you know there's not psychology wrapped up in the relationship between humans and god and in you know western religion but 
in the sagas, it's, it's much more of something that's actually focused on. So I, I, it was not surprising for me then that in that scene, something that I immediately noticed was as they walk into the temple, there is this stele that, that's drawn attention to of um, Odin and several other members of Odin's family. Stele being, for those not in the know, a giant like stone edifice with carvings on it, essentially, uh, at, this, at the entrance of the temple. And it, it's a very clear that attention is drawn to it. Uh, and later on, when Amleth and his father, Arvandil, leave the temple and Fjolnir shows up and kills Arvandil, there's a shot where Amleth runs away from the temple and runs behind a rock that looks strikingly like the stele cut in half. And I mean, that's what I mean when I talk about the wrapping up of psychology and, you know, these interpersonal relationships with mythological figures, right? How are we supposed to interpret that? Well, I think a way you can interpret it right is he is deifying his father. And when his father is killed, that idol is literally stricken in half. And then you think about the stele again in the shot where he walks in and there's already a crack on the stele when when they walk in. And then later on, you learn about like Arvandil as a person and you, you understand why the crack was already there. there. It's just it's it's heavily wrapped up in psychology and that's natural to the story. And what I like about it is that it doesn't draw attention to itself because it is subconscious for Omelette. It's not a direct conscious association it's just there at the edges of his mind and as a point of view character that's what i think makes that scene and you know several other scenes in the rest of the film really intriguing is recognizing that there is something kind of flawed with the way we see the world but that that flaw is inherent to the system. Something I think the Marvel movies in particular and kind of that depiction of like Norse mythology have kind of conditioned us to think is kind of these diet, like these deities, these gods, they were inherently epic and noble and grand. And that if you actually look at the traditions, they were much more flawed, more human, more complicated, more grotesque, scatological, wilder, and stranger than I think that depiction of them really communicates. Um, yeah. And, and I, I think that kind of sort of ties into what Elijah was talking about because the people's relationship with their gods, it wasn't, there, there was worship, but it was a much more it was a much more complicated worship than what we think of as the way people pray to like a modern Abrahamic God. Right. So it's um, also, so I guess that makes it kind of interesting though. I wanted to ask you next about like just the Amleth character as, as far as the Alexander Skarsgård incarnation of him. Cause I think it's a, it's a different protagonist than like what people are maybe used to seeing when they go see a mainstream movie like this. And uh, in, in that opening, like incredible set piece where you first see his Viking crew doing their raid. Like I think the movie is maybe a little careful. He's not, you can tell he draws a line at like hurting the woman and the children kind of, but at the same time, he's still, he's still participating in some gnarly things. Uh, what, what did you think about like going to see like a, a big movie like this, but like having like 
that kind of guy be your point of entry character and be the guy that's like maybe not 100% noble? How do you think Edgar's kind of pulled that off and still telling a story that kind of gave you someone to root for, but maybe wasn't quite as black and white as you're used to seeing? So putting aside the fact that I thought that was an incredible sequence. Mm-hmm. Um, Good thing you didn't watch the trailer because the thing where he like catches the spear and throws it back, like that's something like I don't think they needed to show in the trailer, but they did. So like it wasn't a total shock to me, but that was really incredibly well done. But, but yeah, I guess one one of the things I really loved about that sequence mm-hmm. and, and kind of the, the movie's depiction of Amleth in general is the way it kind of frames his character. And this is kind of going back to something we've talked about as very much an incarnation of the cultural norms of his world. It's whether it is noble or not noble to kind of be a part of this kind of slaving raiding party. That's kind of just what, that is what is there for him. That is kind of what the world kind of demands of of a man in his position to do. And I think our vision of him, and this is actually sort of going to why Hamlet uh, himself is kind of a complicated character. Like Ham, like Hamlet is a character who is fundamentally unable to step off of the path that his devotion has placed him on. Um, it's not that Hamlet even necessarily has a choice because he is in the position of seeing possibility, but not fully having the will or power to step off of that path and that awareness but paralysis is part of what is so interesting about that character and and i think uh amleth as kind of this proto hamlet character i think as the movie goes on especially towards the like the very end there is a growing awareness of how unable he is to kind of step off this path and on some level i wish for more options for him and for, I would say, especially, I don't know if this is a spoiler or not, but his future children. But I think as we encounter him early on in the film, there is no understanding of another path. There is simply duty. And there just isn't room for anything else. Yeah, I I would say that yeah, I was I was gonna ask you, Elijah. Like, I mean, he's obviously like very single-minded in that, but if you also had any thoughts on the Bjork scene, I thought now would be an appropriate time to mention it, given that Ben was just talking about his path. And I was wondering, like, that's largely how he gets set on his path. So I'm wondering what you thought about how they kind of set up his motivations. And even if you want to talk anything about like, or even if you want to say anything about what you thought of Skarsgård's performance. Yeah, I mean, I think so building off what Ben said, you know, in 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 the sagas, there's a discussion frequently of kind of the the willingness of the mind and the willingness of the body, right? Like th- that you need to have this alignment in order to progress along the faded path for yourself. Um, and so what I really loved about that first scene is that it shows us like, oh, he's the body is there, <laughs> like he, he is ready, but it shows us too that he's so far away from anything that makes him, uh, you know, that pushes him down that path that fate has laid out for him, right? He, in, in, in building this machine of vengeance, he's pushed himself intentionally or not to a place where 
it's irrelevant. His vengeance is so far removed from anything that he can do. And that's what I think the value of that scene, his introduction as an, as an adult and that scene with Bjork is it's the, it's the reminder that, that, that vengeance, that fate is not just about physical conviction. It's about mental determination. And I think that become obviously ends up becoming a kind of an underlying plot point for the entire next act of the movie. But um, first of all, I love Bjork. She's amazing. It's really quite unfortunate that Lars von Trier is such a massive piece of shit that he essentially drove her away from acting ever again. For anyone who hasn't seen the Juniper Tree, highly yes. recommend watching that film. This um, was pre pre uh, pre Dancer in the Dark, um, she and was it is also a, an adaptation of a Scandinavian fairy tale. Yes, an uh, Icelandic film from 1991, directed by a woman, which is really awesome, uh, Nitschke Keen, and it's about witches, which we love. Hmm. We stand witches here. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, and she's phenomenal. She's the a, a lead actress in the Juniper Tree, and gosh, every time I see that movie and see a performance like this, uh, it really makes it quite unfortunate for me that she. <laughs> has decided not to really continue acting in a larger capacity because um, she has quite a knack for it. Uh, and part of it might be that, you know, they put her in a massive headdress with no eyes and a bunch of beads. And, you know, it's just a really well-designed scene. I mean, um, it's basically just what her stage look is. but <laughs> Right, exactly. Yeah. It, maybe that's why it seems so natural. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that scene is a scene that right we we kind of get almost like a Seinfeld effect with it where it's like okay this is the fantastical call to action because we've seen it so many times right but it's so important to recognize in the context of that story like what that element is there for and yeah it's the same fundamentally it's the same thing as you know the ghost coming to hamlet in hamlet or you know there there or trying to think of a good really more modern example i mean another adaptation of angry hamlet angry gandalf and well right or you know uh, uh angry worried gandalf in the fellowship of the rings telling you know telling frodo like keep the ring safe kind of thing like it, it's it's a it's a moment where the 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 main actor's path is laid out before them but in modern interpretations, we're usually so disconnected from the idea of like fate. So it's really cool to see that scene laid out in a world and in a context where it's not a call to action so much as a reminder of like, there's something else you should be doing. Well, also what's interesting about that is the kind of fixation on the specificity of his path. Like something that from it narratively is very interesting, I think fits in with this version of fate and destiny and this kind of compulsion that you're talking about in in the movie he's told that he will like fight fight his father uh, and basically in, like around a ring of fire it's something he's told very early in the movie and so despite having other opportunities to potentially take his revenge he waits because fate has dictated that his path is leading to this confrontation and this specific moment so whether it's a uh, feeling that, oh, I don't need to kind of 
push for this compulsion now because this this uh, confrontation will happen later, or this kind of feeling of obedience to the path that has been laid before him. Uh, he doesn't take any of those chances to fight or kill his father earlier, um, which I think fits very much in line with this uh, depiction of, of fate that uh, Elijah, you were talking about. Yeah, I'm just to clarify, I think you mean his father's killer, right? You're talking about Fjolnir, his yes. uncle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was just like, wait, it's, oh, okay. Um, but yeah, yeah, no, it, exactly. And and it's interesting too, because he, and, and this goes to a larger point too that I wanted to mention is it's kind of like there is an there's just an acceptance of magic and and destiny within the world that is so unique right like he and, and it manifests in different ways it, it he goes at one point he actually does i think like try to kill either fjolnir or fjolnir's son thorir with this magical sword that he has obtained but the the sword won't come out of the sheath and then that well okay and that's a whole scene it's it's fjolnir actually because fjolnir goes to have his way with shall we say olga played by anya taylor joy and he almost almost interrupts with the sword but the sword won't come out of the sheath and olga is able to uh find her way out of that situation by revealing to Fjolnir that she is menstruating that she's on her period and she like slaps it in his face and he leaves uninterested right and then he almost says to Olga like the next morning it's like if not for your womanly cycles you know <laughs> or something like that it's like if not for that I wouldn't uh I wouldn't have been able to to save you because the sword wouldn't come out but it's not like there's no deeper meaning to it. It's just the way that the magic works. And that's a bigger aspect of the film in, in a lot of ways. For example, when he first obtains the sword, which is one of my favorite scenes in the movie, he goes to see a, a seer, a he-witch. Um, and the... With Willem Dafoe's skull. With Willem Dafoe's, yeah, uh, decapitated head desiccated head and uh that is then revived momentarily mm -hmm. uh in some way for for Amleth's uh quest if you will to continue um but what I loved about that scene is like he's given this task of like go to the burial mound descend into it you know like <laughs> and obtain this this magical sword and Amleth's just like all right because that's that is the way that world functions. There's no meta text. It's so it's so pure in a way. It's just like that's what you do. That you go to a burial mound, you break in, and you steal a magical sword from a drunker, like from a zombie. And it, it's interesting. And this is actually something larger. I kind of wanted to touch on. I know a lot of people have had sort of mixed reactions to Northmen, and something I've heard a lot more often than I expected actually is it just didn't make sense. And I think a lot of the problems I think certain people had with kind of the narrative of, of the film and feeling like they didn't understand 
why the story was progressing the way it did was because of what you're talking about, how pure it is to the narrative, tonal, and mythological language of this time. And I think that's some, as, as, from, as a modern audience member, I think on some level we're conditioned to these types of stories being modernized. I'm not going to blame Disney, but I blame Disney. And, and I think that when a lot of people are confronted with something like this, it, it's just, it's not something they're, they're used to. And it, it can be hard to open yourself up to that sometimes. And I, I almost wonder if there, if we can look at kind of a direct relationship between the way this film was received and the way Green Knight was received, which I know, Ben, you and I both adored Green Knight yeah. as well. But we both also, when we talked about the Green Knight, a large topic of discussion for that film was how it utilizes narrative structures from Arthuriana and from chivalric romance and, and intentionally turns it on its head in certain ways that you know build towards the the meta narrative and and the the meta text of the film and that's to to be clear i'm not saying that the northman doesn't have like meta text but i don't think there's any inversion really like there's no there is only unity like there's only unity of modern style and traditional storytelling there's no there's no transgression for the sake of building like a deeper meaning and that's okay yeah. but i think that might be what it right what alienated people from this film was like there was not there's like nothing mo- there's nothing modern about it besides the visual styling like I absolutely agreed i mean i've heard i i've even heard some people say that like they really they like mythology but they they didn't quite jive with uh this movie's depiction of mythology. And again, I think a lot of what that is, is we are used to depictions of myth of historical cycles as being told through a very modern lens where it is the specific plot of the story itself that we're exposed to without these kind of tonal and textural elements. So in what was, I saw someone kind of make that, uh, make that point with respect to this and the Green Knight, not, not saying one was worse or better than the other, but just that like, the Green Knight might have had some more of those modern sensibilities in that way. Is that something you guys would agree um, with? Or? I would actually push back on that. Okay, uh, really? Yeah, I mean, so just being like totally honest about this, I I do prefer the Green Knight to the Northman. I love both films, but for me, the Green Knight was at its core aiming at something a little more po- poetic than the North than the Northman was. Again, love both films, but the Green if 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 the Northman was my crack, the Green Knight was. I guess my heroin. Um, <laughs> but I don't really know if I can rank what drugs are worse or not. Anyways. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think the Green Knight was explicitly more modern. Um, I think the way it was using it, it's kind of historical and kind of poetic elements were a little different, but I wouldn't say the movie kind of steps back from from its historical context it's more just it more just assumes that we as audience members will do that anyways which i think is something the northman also does um it may be just kind of a semantic point to make but i i I don't know i I wouldn't say the green knight was any less i guess meaningful in its concept in its uh depiction of the of its particular 
mythological textures or, and tones. Yeah, I don't. I, yeah, I don't disagree. I just I, I wasn't sure what to make it when I saw someone else say that statement. So I was curious uh, where you came down on that and if you had agreed, if you had any. And, I mean, honestly, I think people were more alienated by the Green Knight than they were by the Northmen, um, unfortunately. But yeah. Oh, well, uh, I. I, I, I I want to ask you guys more about that, uh, more, but more about the, I don't even say second half of the movie because it's more than half the movie, but like the movie, once they actually get to Iceland and cause we haven't really spent that much time there. I, we, we, we one of you made the comment earlier about how like, yeah, this was, uh, obviously like, uh, or, or how the, like the lighthouse was not as restrained as, uh, the witch, uh, here, I think, I feel like for like long stretches of this movie, it actually kind of is more restrained in that corner of the movie though, with obviously it's a burst of violence throughout, I was uh, curious, Elijah. Like, what, what what did you what did you ultimately think of just like uh, how we already talked about a lot about Amleth's aims and whatnot, but just kind of like how how we do follow him at that point where he is like uh, forming that for, forming that relationship with Olga, but at the same time, like clearly having some violent aims, and even before he makes the decision he makes at the end, which I mean, I guess we could do a small spoiler section at the end. I'm curious what you thought about how. Uh, how how his plan ultimately kind of comes together and what that kind of and how that character evolves once we're at that point where he's like so much closer to his goal but also has some other considerations in life yeah i i would say it it almost in a way kind of builds onto what i was saying with sort of just the acceptance of magic within the world right olga is is a magical character mm-hmm. that's kind of fundamental to her nature and in in some ways i really I really adore how it was presented, right? She's not casting spells or anything. Like, you know, you don't see her with a bubbling cauldron doing wizard stuff. There's just something like inscrutably magical about her nature, right? She just happens to be in the right place at the right time. She happens to have these certain traits. She just finds mushrooms. Like it's... <laughs> um, it's kind of part and parcel to who she is. And I think what they're communicating in the narrative is like that omelet immediately recognizes that because he is somebody who is naturally in tune with the magic of the world. And so he, he gravitates towards Olga because she is a a pure representation of that magic in play. And I think it's a really, it's a very uh, edaic, a very prosaic relationship, right? It, it's there's not a whole ton of like building of their relationship, mm. but it it's the way that it it's the way that it should be done. If you like, that's it's in the context of the story, it makes sense. They're two magical people who are drawn towards each other by fate. And that's why, you know, maybe it seems a little unbelievable, but it's, it's right. It's what works. If there had been more courtship, you know, and, and I think it, first of all, would have been a distraction. And I also think it would have belied the, the deeper point of their relationship as, as an element of fate. Yeah. I mean, I do think it maybe could have been executed slightly better, but I do agree that the overall method that Eggers used was was the right way. Because that I will say like that relationship did feel a little less satisfying than I think it could have. But again, I, I do think you're right in that I don't know how how much more you could have how much more real estate you could have given that without narratively and tonally kind of throwing off the movie. 
Right. Yeah. He might not feel as like single-minded as he does if they do go there. And I think that's like kind of, I guess, an essential like trait of Amleth as a character and how hellbent he is on all that. Like I, I, there was a point later in the movie where I was wondering if the, if they had intended for the relationship to feel less transactional than it actually did. But at the same time, like I, I didn't necessarily like, I kind of, I kind of get what Elijah's saying in the, in, in that the way, in the way he saw value in her. And like, I, I mean, I like the performances enough that like I was, I was, I, I was there for it. And I, at the same time, like I, it, it, to the, to the point where I was conflicted when he ultimately does have to like, kind of confront like, okay, like how much does she mean to me? How much do these other goals mean to me? And I, I thought it was effective enough on the whole, even if like, I was like, okay, maybe, maybe ideally you feel some kind of stronger connection here, but it was like, I still, I still got what they were going for and thought they did it well, you know? Generally, um, I, I do think, uh, it's, it's fair to say that I wish Anya Taylor-Joy had a little more to do because Anya Taylor-Joy is great. But mm-hmm. overall, I like I, I just I generally do agree with Elijah's point. Yeah, I don't. I kind I kind of just want to like uh, do a little bit of a, a spoiler marker here. I think like there's plenty of other stuff towards the end of the movie we can just kind of delve into. But I feel like people have kind of gotten the gist of you know what what kind of goes on here anyway. And obviously, I think all of us would uh, recommend the movie. I'd hope it sticks around in theaters by the time people are listening to this. But if not, it should be you know, available to get online uh, sooner rather than later at that point. So uh, yeah, check it out. And if you just don't want to hear what happens and kind of at the end or what the big revelations are about these characters, you can uh, check back in uh, after you see the movie. Uh, we, we haven't talked about Nicole Kidman at all, because I, I don't know if there was a whole lot to say about that character that was all that interesting up until it, she all of a sudden is very interesting. Uh, and I think it's like a really, really, really uh, well executed uh just complete turn they make with respect to that part of the movie. And you so believe it's one thing. And then it's just another thing. Um, Ben, you were smiling just now. It sounds like you kind of like, were probably pretty impressed with her and uh, what they pulled off with that, with that character. So I had a very complicated relationship with the tragedy of Macbeth. Hmm. I, there were a lot of good things about it, but I just don't feel like it quite captured the soul of that play. And I do think a, a big part of that had to do with the particular choice that was made with a lot of the performances. I'm not even necessarily blaming the actors themselves for this, but I do think that the direction those act- the actors were pushed to take their characters were not necessarily, for me, what the right choice would have been. And my feeling as I was watching this movie was Nicole Kidman is, is giving the best Lady Macbeth uh, performance I've seen in any movie in a very long time. Mm. Um, I, I I thought it was fantastic, and the actual un- like uncomfortable feeling that goes along with that scene, like it was kind of my skin was crawling a little bit because of the intensity, the discomfort, this like immediate reversal of everything we have been conditioned to feel about this character, uh, her place both in the world and in Omelette's quest. I thought that tur- like just the app, app, the the turn in that scene was fantastic, and again, as kind of a Greek mythology nerd, uh, I also kind of found myself thinking about Clytemnestra a lot because I I think I mean obviously I I don't think that Eggers was pulling from that particular story, but I do think in this moment this character who we have been conditioned to see as more of this kind of sympathetic figure becomes again a Clytemnestra uh, who just for context is the mother from the myth of Orestes 
um, who actively participated in the uh, killing of Agamemnon. Uh, spoilers for a <laughs> like two, three, like twenty five hundred year old Greek myth and play. <laughs> um, but yeah, but I, I thought that scene was fantastic. I thought uh, the intensity of Nicole Kidman's performance was incredible. Um, I don't think it was necessarily a radical departure for her, but I think that what that character meant in that moment, it, it was a shattering sequence that I think brought a lot of the, a, a lot of what was at that point subtextual up to the surface and conditioned us for a lot of where the story would go at the end in terms of uh, Amleth's growing discomfort and simultaneous uh, participation and rejection in his place in this, uh, in, in, in his path and the, the cultural norms that have put him on that path. So I, I mean, we can talk about the actual ending later, but I think that scene is kind of the beginning of everything that uh, snowballs towards that ending from there. Yeah, Elijah, how how did how did that hit you in the moment? Because I, I as I kind of indicated before, I was like pretty pretty blown away. What 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 was your reaction to that scene? Because while yeah, this is based on some kind of source material, I I, I think I think they still kind of execute that like really well in like a way that like uh made made that element of the story feel very original. Yeah, well, so first of all, as far as Nicole Kidman goes, I mean, look, anybody who's seen Birth or Eyes Wide Shut knows that she's extremely capable of playing. Uh. uh depressed uh very unhinged character shall we say <laughs> um and so I, I you know to me it's just like okay there's there she goes again just being great like <laughs> i wasn't particularly shocked um by that and even in a way i wasn't totally shocked by the by the twist you know revelation because it's it's an interesting so and this is you know i'm kind of floating here with us because I don't quite remember uh Gudrun's you know character within within the the Saxon sagas like I don't I don't quite remember how you know she plays out but I know then in Hamlet right it's kind of like implied that Gertrude didn't really mourn uh Hamlet's father's death but it's never like explicitly stated and she ends up just being sort of a tragic figure who accidentally drinks some poison wine. Like so, specifically um, to Hamlet, I was, the ambiguity is very much the point, though. Right, of course. Yeah. But in a way, I I like that there is a more definitive stance here because one, it feels more in line with the viscerality of the of this of the Adaic, the, the the saga materials, um, and it also feels like from a character perspective. Uh, more in line of kind of these characters are guided by fate but every character has um, autonomy in a way that feels very real and also very like important to the way the narrative functions Um, there's not really any character in the story who doesn't have uh, doesn't have autonomy or like a way to progress their own fate. And I like that because it, it's reflective of the way that, that the material really views fate, right? Which is that it's not like, even though Omelette is our point of view character and he is 
the one whose fate we are most interested in, there's never an implication that his fate is the only one in the world. Like every character is driven by these external forces and by the choices that they make to, you know, to follow that path. Um, and so aligning Gudrun's character with that, uh, with that within the story and making her not be helpless, um, I thought was a, a very smart choice. And maybe it's a little, you know, search as la femme, but it, I didn't care so much because I think it it really fit the way the story was was progressing at that point. Yeah, I mean, I I also I, I mean, I kind of saw it coming to an to an extent based on the depiction of the character at that point. But I think the actual like manifestation in that moment of not only is she not mourning, but like how aggressively she is kind of rejecting everything about Amleth's father and him and his association with this kind of uh, like with, with, with him um but but i mean it's it's notable like at no point uh do we ever like up to that do we see her anything other than extremely like happy and contented with fjolnir and her new family and i think that yeah we're just led to believe that like it's all an act right yeah. just because that's what uh that's what almost seems so convincing and I mean, just because we're never meant, to, like, I, we're, we're never so fully on his side, I think there is very much room, even before we actually see this explosion of her true feelings, there is very much room to doubt his perspective of the world um, before this point. And that's why I brought up the Stele in the first scene and the Stele having the crack already because Amleth doesn't understand the, the, the previous, the ancestral context of his own story, because he's just a kid and he's deified his father, but it's his father is a complicated at best person, like uh, straight up villainous at worst. Like, yeah. um, and that's, I, I think, part and parcel right to his uh, point of view and how it's executed in the story is that there is this fracture running through everything and that's the moment where it really falls apart and he has to construct a new worldview um and it's uh, uh, it is unshockingly the moment where I think the movie becomes the most Eggers, right? Like from that point on, it is just an Eggers breakdown. Every film that's not a huge sample size, but The Witch and The Lighthouse both have a point at which after that moment, just everything falls apart. Like in The Witch, it's when the, the younger brother dies. After that moment, just everything goes to shit. Nobody's sleeping anymore. Like there's uh, there's a demon in the barn. There's like it just goes crazy in the lighthouse. It's when he sleeps with the mermaid, right? And it's just like after that point, everything goes wrong. Like I guess it could be killing the seabird. I, 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 was, it, I but, kind of but one of those two, but yeah, yeah, somewhere in between those moments. That's when after that point, they're you know he has Willem Dafoe walking around like a dog on a leash. Like it's, and, and that in this movie, that's that moment, right? Where the worldview is shattered and it, 
everything just goes nuts after that point. And b- both from a just a visceral, like fun. I mean, I, that's such a weird word to use in this context. <laughs> but like, that's when this movie gets just to be completely metal, right? Like, it's just, just people being eviscerated and just all kinds of craziness. Viking, like that, like Valkyrie fantasies and. Right. Yeah. Like, he has like, starts, he starts seeing visions of Valhalla and just like yeah. cr- complete craziness. And, and that's, you know, and, and, and he, like, I think the first thing he does after the reveal with Gudrun right doesn't he like walk into the next room and just rip out Thorir's heart like he yep. I'm pretty sure that's immediately the next thing that he does is he's like you know what fuck this I'm just gonna walk into the next room and rip this woman's son's heart out <laughs> like it, it, it was just like oh shit we're off now uh like I, I made that comment about how a, a stretch of that movie had been kind of actually restrained and then like all of a sudden it is uh it, it is very much not so before we get to the um before we go to the, like the, the the final final scene where we actually kind of uh, have that have that prophecy of that uh, firefight actually come true, I'm 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 curious. Like you just kind of mentioned, like it, it does get very metal there, Elijah. I'm uh, wondering, Ben, did you have any other feelings about how Eggers pulled off that pulled off that action in that part of the movie? Because like I mean, I, I do kind of res- it, it kind of gets to what I was asking you about earlier, and that like I, I mean well yeah it's all like i guess easily fits within a, a rated r rating it, it it feels like he just like he does get to really just kind of like go for it and doesn't really hold much back and just like and and trust that the audience isn't gonna like be like just uh turned off by that even if in theory he should be making this for a bigger audience he's like i'm gonna make this like just as like uh just as like gory and uh piercing as uh both literally and figuratively as i want to and i I kind of like respect that and almost found myself chuckling during a couple of sequences as graphic as they were. So there, there are a few things there. Um, one, like the, the metal thing, like just immediately, I think Elijah even messaged you about this after I saw the movie that the Northman is like, yeah, this is like the most metal thing I've seen in a long time. And it's not just because it was violent. And actually I think when we talk about what makes it so metal and so kind of tonally what it is, it's important that we talk about more than just gore. Um, in fact, Edgar specifically, and this is actually, I think, something important to bring up in the movie, because I think it's what not only makes it what it is, but stops it from being what it isn't. Eggers is someone who is himself not necessarily the most comfortable with very fetishistic depictions of like on-screen kind of machismo-driven violence. And I think that discomfort and not wanting to fully revel in, in that I think kept the movie from becoming too much uh, and and too kind of fetishistic in the way it kind of depicted that violence. Mm. I mean, he even talked, like he's, he's talked about it in interviews a lot and he talked, he talked about it in the Q&A I went to too. He was sort of reluctant to even be involved in the movie because his association with Vikings was with kind of the way... Yeah, been North, co-opted a little bit by some not so great political movements. Yeah, uh, that's, that's, that's a way to put it. <laughs> yeah, the neo-Nazi association really did not do the do the Vikings or the the Scandinavian pantheon any favors. PR people were asleep at the wheel on that one. Yeah, it, it, it um, yeah, no. So, w- but when we talk about what makes it so metal, it's it's not just that it was over the top or violent. It is from I would say especially from that point in the movie on, even just kind of the imagery. It like ever like every frame feels like an album cover. Um, it's like that, that the scene of them uh, making love in front of like the waterfall, 
it's not just, oh, they're at this like beautiful location, ten, like, and, and it's tender. There is something bombastic and operatic and metal about even that sequence. Um, as tender as it is, it's fucking metal. <laughs> and, and I think that we, we obviously see it in the violence too. Uh, it's brutal. But I actually think that rather than that being what makes it less accessible, truthfully, and I think this is something that Eggers probably str- like struggled with in terms of him getting his cut, that is probably what makes it a little more traditional and kind of accessible for in the, in the context of a, a standard Hollywood film than it otherwise could have been. Hmm. Um, I would say kind of the viscerality of that violence is probably what makes it a little more accessible and that's that's what we were talking about earlier right lineage 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 like it is that 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 element is one of the things that has trickled through history through you know reinterpretation of edaic prose and you know things like that right like it is that is one thing that has kind of stuck around and that's why people are comfortable with it and it's it's metal and in a way that's i love metal because a lot of heavy metal and i mean kind of taking like a diversion here but like a lot of heavy metal very much understands that imagistic quality of like scandinavian mythology and any any metal band that interprets not any but a lot of metal bands that interpret and interpolate that material understand that uh, implicitly in a way that I think is really kind of important in in this feedback loop and that's sort of what what makes the the imagery and the violence of this movie work right is like it doesn't feel out of place when we get a a wide shot of of violence rather than tightly edited you know whatever's because it's it's imagery that we are as like a 21st century pop culture absorbing machine are familiar with like like ben said these stills could all be album covers and i think like people implicitly understand that even if you don't listen to heavy metal, like you know what a heavy metal album cover looks like. And that's- So I'll also quick tangent on that. I like, as someone who had, I would say a complicated relationship with metal and didn't, it's it's still not my favorite genre in the world, but I like and respect it a lot more than I did. Highly recommend anyone who kind of feels similar to how I used to, to check out a comic series called Murder Falcon. Um, it, as odd as it sounds, it's actually an incredibly beautiful- tender and meaningful comic that very much explores metal and the relationship that the people who love it have to that music. And it used it through an incredibly epic and bombastic and at the same times time, very intimate lens. Again, I want I don't want to explain anything about it until you read it, uh, but it is incredibly epic. And I think if you read it, you'll come away with a much better appreciation of what metal means to people who like it and as if to as if to prove the point by contrast too i would also like to point out that while we're using metal as a touchstone here i think it's important to recognize that you you can approach the same imagery from a different perspective right sigaros wardruna not bands i would technically really call metal even though they do kind of like sort of sometimes dip into like 
prog stuff but they are all also heavily inspired by the same imagery and i think it's it's there's a larger than life epic feeling even if it manifests itself in a very different way right exactly Elijah, I know you really liked The Witch. That movie had like a budget of like $2 million. <laughs> uh, if, if I had told you the guy, when you saw that, the guy that made this movie in like seven years is going to have a movie with a massive budget and is going to uh, have a, it's going to culminate in a sword fight on a volcano, but it's still going to feel true to what who this director really is. What would you have said? <laughs> I, I wouldn't have believed it. I didn't believe it walking out of the theater. <laughs> I said to when the we sat, I sat through the entire credits. And when the, you know, Regency and Focus Features logos came up at the end, I turned to Haley and I was like, I just, it's not possible. Like, it's not <laughs> like... And unfortunately, it's probably never going to happen again. Yeah. <laughs> the, it went out with a bang. This was like the first and only time it's 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 like ever happened. Right. I mean, it's been what, like 20 years since Gladiator. And like, I, I was like, we're pretty sure that like the epic film format is dead unless it has a giant purple alien in it. Like that's kind of just been something that's been true for a while. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I was I was blown away when I heard that this was going to be made. I was blown away after watching it into this moment i mean i still think anything else about this movie aside like take away everything else it's just amazing that this movie got made the way that it did and yeah part of me wants to see the 315 minute eggers cut that maybe exists somewhere but i i don't need it per se this is not like a kingdom of heaven where there's something fundamentally missing without Edgar's you know full vision I think the movie works as it is and I think that's an incredible accomplishment right like it seems like it Ben it seems like you were equally impressed with like just how he goes for it there in that in that final act and I'm just gonna say like I mean yeah I get what Elijah's saying about like yeah we might never exactly get this again but it's like Man, I mean, it's like we've already made several allusions to how in theory this is kind of made for a broader audience than his other movies. It's like if people aren't going to like get into like a freaking volcano sword fight, then I mean, I I, I don't I don't I don't know what to say. Like, it's like if if one of these is going to turn a profit, it seems like it'd be the one that like put off something like that, you know? Well, so I think part of what it is, and this is something that like. I think as people who like love movies, sometimes we have to think a little bit more deeply about how we describe movies to people. Um, Volcano sword fight. I don't need to yeah, think like, that. Like, no, but like, here's the thing. It's like a lot of the things that like I love about movies I love are not necessarily going to be the things that like, if I'm pitching a movie to someone, maybe they're not the things that I should pipe up to them. Like I may think that there is something about a movie that they that will really resonate with with the person I'm talking to or that they may really love. And if you are trying to kind of sell someone, especially like just one-to-one on a movie, hmm. maybe like try to think about what they are going to take away from it. And I think with a movie like The Northman, we can talk a lot about how it used uh, the tonal artistic and poetic language of a very specific oral tradition to capture something meaningful both about fate and how people were at this time and kind of any other very interesting thing that Eggers is doing but 
look, sometimes what you just, you need to tell people is it is a fucking awesome movie where like half naked Vikings fight each other with like swords and volcano. Like it, it it's mm-hmm. as interesting and meaningful and creative and cinematic as it is. It's pretty fucking awesome. Speaking of half naked Vikings, Ben, have you uh, looked into getting on Alexander Sarsgaard's uh, workout regimen? <laughs> uh i'm well beyond that um, <laughs> uh i have he's my fucking tall idol he's like what he's like six four or something he's pretty damn tall viking stock so right, right. well yeah. it's hard for me to find like a legit workout plan because like they're like it, when you read the fine print it's like you know six it's built for somebody who's like six one Six no, foot you, to six the, one, like you have to do a little bit of uh fine tuning to kind of adjust certain things to kind of your body type. That's true for like truthfully, that's something that anyone who is starting a workout program should do. I'm not gonna go in a whole tangent about like lifting and fitness, but <laughs> never like anytime you're starting a workout program, always take some time to kind of figure out what movements work for you and your body type. Hey, the Vikings would love to have long, long conversations about fitness. <laughs> fitness plans uh, i mean look i'm just saying that's another conversation that can make this go on for an extra well so so, so all joking aside we didn't talk that much about the performances yet at all i mean like yeah. uh alexander skarsgård is someone who like i i i don't have like as many points of reference for him as i probably should in that like i i don't know i feel like i watched like part of true blood and then i like i just saw him like uh pop and i i didn't like bother with the legend of tarzan and then i just like saw him like pop up in other things over like the next several years and miss some of like the big movies he did that like weren't all that well received. And then I, but like, then he's like all of a sudden in Godzilla versus Kong last year in like a fairly like thankless role. And then he's on a succession, then he's in passing. And then I, last night I watched Diary of a Teenage Girl for the first time. And I was like, I, cause I just knew it was like a very different type of performance from him. I'm like, man, I don't, I don't, I don't really know what to like uh, make of this dude, but like, it seems like this was like something that like, yeah, maybe it doesn't necessarily like, I, it's hard to kind of describe exactly what it's like asking for someone asking from asking from out of him, like um, emotionally performance wise. Cause that character is just like, so in the fucking zone for like so much of the movie. And like, clearly, as we've said before, has those, ha- has, the, has that mission on his mind of, you know, killing my uncle, avenging my father, saving my mother, all that. He says a lot of the same stuff over and over again, but like, I feel like he, uh, uh, get, getting in really, really, really great shape aside, he's still like understood the assignment and did a great job of like bringing like this level of intensity to the role. Uh, what did you, how, how do you think he like carried this movie on his shoulders, Elijah? I, so first of all, I have really, really big shoulders. Big shoulders. Yeah. I love Alexander Skarsgård. I think he's a highly underrated, uh, under, underutilized actor, shall we say. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, you look at something like uh, the legend of Tarzan and you understand that some people look at him and just see the physicality and that's all they can see. And they can't see past that. Um, Two roles that I would highlight with him are an early performance of his uh, in generation kill uh, right, right. Is it an a, the HBO miniseries by yeah. David Simon? Based I totally on, forgot about that. I watched that during lockdown in 2020. Yeah, yeah. Based on Evan Wright's uh, Rolling Stones uh, article series about the Iraq War, uh, and he plays Alexander Skarsgård. Skarsgård plays uh, Brad Colbert, who is a um, I think at the time he's a sergeant in the marine corps uh, he's a recon marine uh, and he's kind of the the main 
entrance that that Evan Wright has into this world. Um, and I think it's a gr- another great example of him playing this like warrior spirit where it's it transcends just the physicality. He captures something essential about that warrior. And admittedly, it's a very different warrior than, <laughs> than the one in the Northmen. But it's there's this like sardonic wit and incredulity and like poeticism that comes with that role. And I, I really loved that. And then again, he blew my mind a couple years ago um, when he was in Little Drummer Girl, uh, which Ooh, I is I've been meaning to. Yeah, is Little Drummer Park Girl. Chan Wook. Uh huh. Yeah, it's a, a another miniseries uh, directed by Park Chan Wook based on a John le Carre novel, John le Carre being the famous Cold War spy novelist. Um, Little Drummer Girl also stars Florence Pugh, who uh, is, I think, my favorite working actress. So that was going to be an easy hit for me. And Michael Shannon, who I absolutely love. Um, And it's hard to kind of explain the plot without giving a whole lot away. But again, he plays uh, another warrior who has to have a much more complicated presence than just being physically there um and uh and so for me again as i said with nicole kidman when i saw this movie i was not particularly surprised that he just owns this role um because i think he understands what it means to to have this marriage of body and spirit and as I mentioned earlier, with this story, that is especially relevant. And it seems like Eggers just found the perfect actor, right, to fill that role. Somebody who seems to intrinsically understand that there is like this, this samsara, if you borrowing from Eastern culture, if you will, <laughs> there's this, this marriage, right, of mind and body. Um, and, and who can essentialize that and like portray it in the role in a way that is that at times requires no words like that's talent ben uh i i it it sounds like you were mostly in agreement on that and you kind of thought that he, he he was able to he was able to carry the movie effectively yeah no i it it's funny so my relationship with scarsgard uh I watched True Blood probably for a few seasons past when I should have given it up. Um, <laughs> it seems like most people think he was like the best part of it, though. From he what was. I recall. Yeah. Like I, I, even when, even when True ba- True Blood got very very bad, which it which it did, Skarsgård was never the reason why. I think he's always been someone who has probably deserved better opportunities to showcase his abilities than he's been given. Um, I, I I'm not going to say he's like always been on my list of my favorite actors but i've i've always liked him i've always wanted to see more out of him and him given opportunities to show more and i do think that this is probably the best showcase he's had in a very long time i i actually really need to see the little drummer girl i it was i like barely watched tv and that was one that i kind of made a note to watch and then did not um so i may have to make time for that at some point but I think that I, I was very impressed with his performance. I do think that it maybe didn't necessarily demand as much complexity out of him as uh, some of Edgar's other leads have. Like for me, this wasn't quite uh, a Pattinson and Northman moment. 
but that's only because I think that role demanded a little bit more range out of Pattinson than this demanded out of Skarsgård. I think every single... You're, you're muted, but Pattinson and Lighthouse, I think yeah, you meant uh, to say. Yeah. Oh, wait, did that, was I muted? You, no, 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 you, no, I, no, I was no. muted. Yeah, yeah, I think you, you said Pattinson and Northman. I think you meant Pattinson and Lighthouse. I'm exhausted, yeah. Uh, Pattinson, <laughs> yeah, uh, Pattinson in uh, Lighthouse. But I think that every single thing that Skarsgård needed to do with this performance, he did. I think he he absolutely carried the movie for a lot of it. Although I will say the performance that I probably came away most impressed by and that I kind of feel the need to kind of spotlight the most is uh, Kleist Bank, who I feel like The Square is one of those movies that has had a very complicated and ever-changing reception over the last few It years. sucks. You're never going to convince me otherwise. <laughs> okay, it doesn't suck. It's all. It's not great, but it's... <laughs> So, like, for me, it's one of those movies that I feel like immediately after The Palm Door, it very much, like, kind of became, like, the story became really this one, The Palm Door, more than anything else. I don't think it sucks. I think it's an okay, at times, interesting movie that definitely did not deserve to win The Palm Door in a year that you were never really there was playing. But I think that Klaus Bang was never a part of any problems that movie had. And it's really good to see him finally get a, I would say, deserving showcase. Because if Skarsgård carries the movie with intensity, um, I think Fjolnir is very often the character who showcases, I would say, a little more complexity. Because there is this uh, intensity that is associated with the time that especially we see towards the end. But I would say we actually get to see a little bit more of a complicated psychology for this character. And part of that is just because of where these characters are in different places in terms of the story. But I came away really, really impressed uh, with, with Bang's performance. I would say like in terms of performances from this year, it is, it is one that has stuck with me more than most. It's intense, but it's human. We buy the love he has for his tragedy. We buy the complexity at times, darkness of the man, but I think we also understand why the people who love and care about him love and care about him. And, and I think a lot of our ability to buy him as a complex human figure in a story where not every character is allowed to be a complex figure is very much uh, down to the performance. Um, that, that is the one that really stuck with me the most in the movie. I, I would totally agree with that. I was not on the square train. i had not really found anything that I had particularly liked Class Bang in. And it's not to say that like I couldn't tell that he was talented, but like I don't know. Like it it now like I think the next thing I saw him in after the square was like the girl in the spider's web. And I was like, all right, just fuck, fuck this. Just fuck <laughs> like, like, like I guess I just don't like this guy. But when I saw this movie and I saw his performance, it immediately struck a chord for me and I will, I will now use this opportunity to drop a uh, name, drop a movie that everybody knew I was going to mention, uh, which is uh, an Icelandic film called Hrafnin uh, Fligor or uh, When the Raven Flies. Everyone you um, have been, I've never heard of that movie. But yeah, or I, yeah, I guess I, I mentioned <laughs> it to a few people. I, it is an Icelandic Viking film about a man on a revenge quest against the people who killed his family. And 
there is some very obvious comparisons and some very not obvious, you know, or some very obvious non uh, comparisons that Hrafnin uh, Fligor was made in the 1980s. It is extremely 1980s. It has the like the most. Somebody on Letterbox described this the score as stone cold Viking funk, and I'm like, yep, that's a hundred percent right. Like it's just it is so like specifically Icelandic in a way that is like that reaches the sublime, frankly. <laughs> like, but uh, there is a character in that movie, one of the villains. His the character's name is Thord, and he's played by an uh, an Icelandic actor who is named uh, Helgi Skulason. And the performance to me of Klaus Bang in The Northman was so reminiscent of that performance, and that performance itself was a direct derivation of a of a Viking saga of the the Frostbreda Bredra uh, saga, and that character has a traditional prosaic background like that there is a there is a an archetypical character in uh in uh norse mythology of like the stoic poet warrior who is a complete like a complete fucking psychopath and a murderer but who has some like ephemerality to him some like Every time he's on screen or on on the page, right? It's like there's something that he knows that nobody else does. Um, and Klaus Bang carried that so perfectly through the whole lifespan of it, through the breakdown, through him like being like, "Well, great, I guess we got to sacrifice my son now." <laughs> like, you know, like there, like there, there is a it's it. He's and it's. I mean, it works because he's right. He's a foil to Amleth in a way very Shakespearean touch there right having a foil but he is right there's there's this like placidity and like acceptance of fate in a way that feels so contrary to like Omelette's driven approach to fate and yeah I, I would I would just all this is to say I completely agree with Ben that I thought you know of all the performances the one that surprised me the most was Klaus Bang and just being just completely owning that role and that archetype yeah so even if i like the square more than you did i didn't go away expecting this out of out of him Fair like enough. it very much was a, a shock to me um and yeah I, i'm also legitimately surprised it took you this long to to, to mention uh that movie <laughs> I was going to drop it at the end when we like the, the end end when we talk right. about, you know, movie suggestions, because I have I have a few we can mention, but <laughs> yeah, we, we, if, if we, we should we should get we should hurry up and get to that point. I'll, I'll just add one more thing. And that like if you're talking about things you didn't really know what to expect from people, uh, I, 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 th- I thought Ethan Hawke slid into this world pretty well when he's someone that we just know so well from other things that are so unlike this. So like good on him for that for not just feeling like just not coming across like he was ethan hawk playing dress up for a viking movie because he wanted to be in a viking movie which i mean was a little worried about maybe because like it's just i i know him so well from like just totally totally different genres where it's like it's like you can kind of understand like you can kind of get alex skarsgård just kind of or alexander skarsgård just like playing like a a shirtless dude that like is fighting and stuff ben any final thoughts on the northman before we wrap this up yeah, I mean, one one thing I did want to make sure I, yeah. I talked about, just because I, I mentioned it earlier, uh, 
I, I love the fact that the movie depicted a conflict of varying cults and traditions within kind of the context of Scandinavian mythology. Like we actually have characters in the movie who are conflicting over what gods they follow. And, and one thing that I think is interesting about our modern understanding of kind of classical pantheons and classical mythological traditions is there's kind of this unity of, oh, of, oh this is Greek mythology. This is Norse mythology. When in actuality, these traditions were a lot more multifaceted and much more complicated than we really realized. Like within ancient Greece, there wasn't just kind of this one central Greek mythology or like a united church of, of Greece that like every single person who worshipped the gods worshipped the same gods in the same way. There were hundreds of different cults and regional interpretations. There were like 12 different Artemises and all like different city states and different kinds of smaller churches or, or temples would worship a god called Artemis, but their version of Artemis would be completely and entirely different. There were a number of different creation myths, a number of different versions of the pantheon. Some people believed in some gods and not others. Some city-states would go to war over their versions of gods. So there was much more than just kind of this version of Greek mythology. And, and it was the same with Norse mythology. It was the same with most of kind of these unified mythological spiritual traditions. And in the context of the movie, we have, again, Olga's worship of her kind of, I would say, more animistic kind of forest, almost druid-esque versions of the gods. And then you have, there, there's that scene, and it's the, the, the sacrifice to Frodrin, I think, was, was, uh, feel, like the, was the god that Fjolnir worshipped. And after Skarsgård kind of interrupts the sacrifice and, and kind of disembowels the priest, um, there's that line later, I, I want to say it came like right after that sequence, and I think it was from Gudrun, but there was something along the lines of maybe like you worship the wrong god or something like that. It's been a little while since I've seen the movie, but I remember there being that moment, and I just like that acknowledgement of the conflict in various kind of traditions of, of worship, and, and that's, that's not really something we see in modern depictions of classical mythology. So I was just really excited to see that on screen. Yeah. Uh, Elijah, anything you want to add to that or any other uh, things you wanted to highlight from the movie before you wrap up? Yeah. I mean, obviously I could talk on end about the, the visual design of the movie. I thought it was just a beautiful looking movie and I would want to make that nod, but I will use this moment to loop back to something that we talked about earlier briefly that I think we kind of, I don't want to say blew off in a way, but we didn't fully address because it's kind of goofy and I think it's nevertheless 100% something that this movie succeeded by including. Farting. And exactly. The scatological yeah. element. Uh, a, a scatology and like the, uh, the, the, the obscene is deeply, deeply intertwined with uh, Norse mythology. I can't quite speak to a lot of other mythological canons, if you will, but in Norse mythology, it's all all over the fucking place, everywhere, um, and it's so it's so complicated in its portrayal because it's it's very much acknowledged as like this is a very base thing, right? Like this is this is so human, but that's what makes it so powerful, right? Is like 
there there's scenes in the prose with like farting competitions between gods like between deities and it's like that's what humanizes them that's what that like and it's a subtext there but it's it goes beyond that for this movie what I loved in this movie was the association of that scatological humor, if you will, with not necessarily being a man, like being being mature, but like being in command, being in control. And and because it it's not just that scene at the beginning. One of my favorite images from the movie is the first night that um that Amleth sneaks out of once they're in Iceland and he is living in the slave hut. The first night that he sneaks out, he climbs up through the uh, the chimney, the, the fire opening in the roof, and he is. There's a shot of him walking, like walking low along the roof, and there is a very obviously placed chimney from a distant hut that lines up perfectly like in parallax with his backside the entire shot and there is a plume of smoke coming (laughs) out of his coming out of his ass the entire shot and i was like i was sitting there and just in awe i was like oh my god they did it like he can like they he kept the image like the image going and it was so ridiculous but it made so much sense and it was just something I really appreciated because I know it's something that people are going to blow off or be like, what's with Eggers? Like, why is he weird with like, why does he put Barding in all of his movies? But in this movie, I can't really speak to the lighthouse because again, it's not my historical wheelhouse. But for this movie in specific, I can say the uh, the grotesquerie, the 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 scatological humor was perfectly in line with what I think the movie was trying to accomplish, both narratively and with the way that it uses uh the the language and the voice of the the source material yeah i think you mentioned like oh well it goes it's obvious you mentioned before you made the point it's obvious like it's a incredibly beautiful movie and well shot and all that and it's like i think that and just its attention to detail just makes it visually something that like feels like incredibly um visceral and you can just uh it's it's a very grimy world and that is conveyed through all the shots but because of that like i don't think any of the um scatological stuff as you're talking about like none of it feels like gratuitous it feels of a piece of just like in this world with these dudes and these types of places like it's just it's gonna feel like it's not gonna smell good you know it's it's it's, it's just not gonna be pleasant in that regard and uh he certainly conveys that like incredibly well and it's very very vivid i and i guess my final thought of the movie is i i i would want to harp on that too and just say like look like even if you're me and make, like you're not going to necessarily connect to like the Shakespeare stuff or a lot of the or, or just a, a lot of the mythology behind these things, like if you still have the chance to see this movie in theaters, it's worth seeing it just to literally see it because it's as you've already mentioned a few times, like it, it's no guarantee you're going to get another movie where they're going to just give a director ninety million dollars to just like go do something like this where, where where it's really not tied to like any kind of like superhero stuff or whatever, and it kind of goes along with what Ben was saying about the Asai thing earlier where like he. He wouldn't even want to make a superhero movie for $90 million. He want to do it for 20 and they're not going to be that. They're only going to be for $220 million. So uh, just if you want to like see someone get a lot of money to make a, a kind of story like this, uh, this is certainly one that's like worth your time. And just to like kind of see it and marvel at the fact that like someone got paid to make something like this weird and specific, but, you know, also really exciting at all at the same time. Uh, Elijah, I know you said you, you have a couple of recommendations that might kind of tie into this kind of thing you want to give before you get out of here. 
Yeah, so I, I already mentioned uh, Raftin Fligor, When the Raven Flies. Um, there, that film is actually the first film in a trilogy of Viking films. Uh, not all of them deal with revenge and not all of them have Stone Cold Viking funk soundtracks. Hmm. Um, but the, the other two in the, in the trilogy are In the Shadow of the Raven and uh, a film called The White Viking or Embla, depending on which edition you can get a hold of. They are just incredibly Icelandic uh, in their cultural affectation. And they are, I, what, I, what I love to say is like haplessly, incredibly authentic. Like there was no, it's clear that there was no like intentionality of like, we need to make everything perfect. It was just like, they went and talked to a bunch of leather workers who were living near the set and were like, hey, can you make costumes? And they were like, yeah, sure. And it just, it, it's so steeped in a local tradition uh, in a way that like, it re- honestly reminds me of like, when I watch a film like, uh, like Hyenas from like West Africa, where it's, it's just the same kind of like, it's not like there's, we think of like cultural, quote unquote, cultural films as like being so intentional but they're they're usually not, and I think this is from a like from an Icelandic perspective. These are perfect examples of that. I would also add that there. So I took I took Haley on a little voyage of films to get to to the Northmen. Uh, mm. The other one that we watched was The Virgin Spring, the uh, Ingmar Bergman Ingmar Bergman's film, uh, 1950. I was, what was it? I thought it may have been it was sixty. It was, but... 1960 yeah, yeah you're right 1960 um it is another viking revenge film although it's not quite i think saying viking is a bit disingenuous scandinavian would be would be more accurate but it is a film that deals deeply with the the clash of old and new and in, in in the context of the virgin spring old mythologies and old understandings of the world with christianity um and again it's a it's a revenge film so I think it fits in well, um, but uh, and also a great, a great couple of central performances in that one. Max von Sydow, as always, just blowing it away. Um, that one's available on the Criterion Channel. The Viking, the Ra- the Raven trilogy. I have a, I have copies because I reached out via email to the director. <laughs> <laughs> um, they're not as easy to get a hold of. I think when the Raven flies is on YouTube, um, it, like a decent-ish quality with passable subtitles. I don't think it'll anything will distract from the experience. Um, so I, I would I would at least try and check out when the Raven flies, Raften uh, Fligor, like I said on YouTube. I might uh, do. Or you can tr- or you can try reaching out to. Uh, Rafan Gunlagsen via email. The dude's like seventy nine. It's a little bit harder to get a hold of him now than it was a few years ago. But yeah, if I if I, if I don't sleep through my three hour flight I have tomorrow due to the fact that I'll be getting like less than five hours of sleep, I might I I I might actually uh, just uh, t- take you up on the recommendation you just made and watch The Virgin Spring because I haven't watched a Bergman movie since the fall when I was watching a bunch of them at Ben's direction before we did the podcast on Bergman Island and that's only 90 minutes. So not not a huge ask and it might be pretty interesting to see given that everything we just talked about. Uh, ben, uh, anything you want to recommend Viking related or otherwise? 
so first off, any chance I have to tell people to watch a Burden movie, I'm always going to take. So just going to co-sign what Elijah <laughs> said there about The Virgin Spring. It's great. You should watch it. Something he brought up about kind of cultural specificity. I guess a movie I, def- I actually want to recommend um, as what I think may be kind of the best interpretation of Greek uh, mytholo- mythological traditions that I've seen on screen is uh, pure... Pier Paolo Pasolini's Medea, which is an incredible, incredible film that captures the particular epic, tragic, and mythological quality of its source material better than just about, not even just about, better than any kind of Greek myth brought to life on screen that I've ever seen. But actually, in terms of the movies I was originally going to talk about, um, another director who I think really nails kind of that cultural specificity, that almost unconscious cultural specificity that Elijah's talking about, is the Thai director of Pichapangir Stockwell. And a movie that is potentially in theaters, depending on where you live right now, that I really recommend you check out if you have a chance, is Memoria. For a while, the plan was for it to only be playing in one theater at a time ever, and for it to never hit streaming. It, From what I understand, their release plan has, schedule has changed, and you may actually have a chance to see it someday. If it is playing in a city near you, if it ends up on streaming ever, if you have a chance to see this movie, I highly recommend you take it. It's a very strange, inscrutable, and unique. Um, but it is the type of, I would say, artistic cinematic event that I think you owe it to yourself to experience. Basically, it's it stars Tilda Swinton. Um, it's about... Uh, an, an expat living in Colombia um, who is awoken by a strange sound that only she can hear. And sort of the movie as a whole is her sort of kind of quietly tracking down the origin of that sound. It's, it, it's one that is very much going to be for people who are in line with kind of that type of slow artistic cinema. But if, if you are someone who any of those words apply to, I highly recommend you check it out because it's a really beautiful movie. A movie that more people will actually have a chance to experience though is a movie called We Are All Going to the World's Fair, which is bar none the most incredible movie I've seen from 2022 so far. Uh, It's an indie horror movie that very much centers on the internet and our relationship to it and what digital life is in the year 2022. Uh, or 2021, I guess, which is when it came out. I really don't want to say anything about what the movie is because I think it's something that it really helps to go in totally blind. Um, But I will say it is the most poetic, meaningful, and probing portrait of social media and digital life that I have seen in a very long time. And it's also the type of independent film that really deserves more support uh cannot recommend that one enough i'm going to be thinking about it for a very long time well there you go and if you watch it and want more ben's thoughts ben's on letterbox at ben lubin elijah is at elijah howard i am at josh jernavoy j-o-s-h-j-u-r-n-o-v-o-y on twitter and letterbox podcast email is the real movie pod at gmail.com the podcast twitter is at rewind movie pod i don't know what's coming up next on the podcast i still have a bunch of stuff 
in the can and um it's probably at some point will be the doctor strange and the multiverse of madness podcast but who knows when that's actually coming out because i'm not seeing it for like the first six days in a theater because i'm about to go visit my 86 year old grandpa and that would just seem very cruel to make an 86 year old grandpa go watch doctor strange in the multiverse of madness so <laughs> we'll, we'll see when that actually uh ends up happening but uh we will rest assured we will obviously be covering it because it's it's a marvel movie uh, again, uh, thanks to Ben and Elijah for joining me. Uh, hopefully there'll be some other uh, journey into the like 10th century next year where a guy has to go kill someone and they can come back for that. <laughs> and uh, we hope all of you will join us as well. So thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.